Have you ever heard the term digital native? What about Cyberchild? Marketers, academics, journalists, and policymakers alike have been using these terms for over two decades to describe the perceived affinity and ease with which children engage with digital technologies. Such terms and the assumptions they emerge out of are celebratory and optimistic. They evoke an image of the child as empowered and innately skilled, ready to meet the challenges of the information age, the very opposite of the child at risk. But the idealization of children as inherently and universally superior at using digital technology is also incredibly problematic. It effaces the stark inequities in access to technological devices and infrastructures that exist among children living in different countries or different parts of a country or even different neighborhoods in the very same city. It also ignores important differences in familiarity, skill, and literacy among kids of different ages and abilities, as well as the persistence of systematic disparities along class, race, and gender lines. The idea of the digital native is based on overgeneralizations and misconceptions, and it works to perpetuate them. Children on this spectrum are impacted in especially complex ways by the myth of the digital native. It intersects with other stereotypes and flat-out misinformation about autism and technology that kids on the spectrum are forced to confront at school, in popular culture, and across their everyday lives. This includes the stereotype of the autistic savant, which is found in media representations of all people on the spectrum as geniuses with exceptional skills or brilliance in a particular field. The compounding of these myths means that there's often a lot that is assumed about how kids on the spectrum do or should use technologies. It obscures the diverse needs and experiences of children with different forms of autism, the different types or levels of support they might need, and the impact of intersectionality on their technology access and use. Dr. Meryl Alper, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Northeastern University, is determined to bring these issues to light. Her forthcoming book, Kids Across the Spectrums, Growing Up Autistic in the Digital Age, to be published by the MIT Press, shares insights and findings from the latest study in her ongoing research on the various and at times conflicting opportunities and challenges that media technologies provide to young people with disabilities and their families. This larger work has been published in numerous articles, including Digital Technology and Rights in the Lives of Children with Disabilities, which was co-authored with Gerard Goggin and published in New Media and Society in 2017. It's also the subject of two previous books that Dr. Alper has published with the MIT Press, Digital Youth with Disabilities, which came out in 2014, and Giving Voice, Mobile Communication, Disability and Inequality, which was published in 2017. Dr. Alper is a leading scholar at the intersection of children's studies and disability studies. Her last book, Giving Voice, won the 2018 Outstanding Publication in the Sociology of Disability Award, given by the American Sociological Association. And she's frequently invited to share her expertise with children's media and technology producers, including Sesame Workshop, PBS Kids, and Disney. I'm Sarah Grimes, director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto and host of the Critical Technology Podcast. Today I'll be talking to Dr. Meryl Alper about her upcoming book, Kids Across the Spectrums, 
and her thoughts on the role of digital and media technologies in the everyday lives of autistic kids and their families. Please note that in order to protect their identities, Dr. Alper uses pseudonyms in our interview when discussing her research participants. Your forthcoming book is called Kids Across the Spectrums. Who are the kids described in this book, and why did you focus on these particular children in your research? So in my last book, Giving Voice, I focused on kids who were non-speaking, who, due to a variety of developmental disabilities, so that might have been Down syndrome, um, that might have been cerebral palsy, but most of them actually turned out to be on the autism spectrum. And I was really focused on the ways that they were using iPads, these ubiquitous mobile devices, as assistive tools. But at the end of all of that, you know, massive amounts of data collection, I had all this stuff that had to do with everything else they were doing with the iPad that wasn't just this one kind of prescriptive use. Um, their YouTube, you know, usage, their, um, and not just the iPad, but all the other technology, all the devices, all the other platforms in their lives. So there was sort of this, this, I had this data, I was ready to, to do something with it and build on it. Uh, but also from a more like theoretical or conceptual level, I had focused on this idea of, you know, what does voice even mean? Um, I had thought a lot about how in the mass media, in the press, in the language around these tools, as it relates to people with speech disabilities, this idea that technology gives them a voice. Um, and we can talk about that on a lot of levels, a lot of different marginalized groups, the idea of them being themselves inherently in some manner disempowered and the technology as this equalizer, um, as this liberator, all these other things. So I, was, I had been playing around with voice and in thinking about kids on the spectrum, and again, some of them do have significant speech disabilities, um, um, but you know, many, many do not, that the core theme that, that seemed to come out of that was that the way that these kids use technology also plays upon this idea of what does it even mean to be social? Um, considering that, you know, you're talking about this idea non-speaking people don't have a voice, well, clinically, autistic people are characterized as having deficits or a lack in social communication, as kind of an absence or a kind of deviance of sociality. So in the same way that I was thinking about voice from this more grounded perspective, how is voice enacted? How is it made? How is it contested around and through technology in these different contexts? I, I thought that there was something here to, to hone into as that related to being social as well. I should also note that I am not on the autism spectrum myself, neither am I a clinician or a family member of a person on the autism spectrum, uh, but I am a curious person. And I had read in terms of what has been written about you know, autistic kids and their technology use, I'd seen some like parent memoirs, um, I'd read blog posts, or even kind of individual academic studies but it wasn't a topic that I'd seen a real, you know, academic book length attention paid towards um, in the way that in the field of, you know, young youth and media and technology that there had been many books written about. And I thought that this topic deserved that kind of critical attention. An important goal of your work is to dispel the various myths that exist about young people on the spectrum, 
which emerge as assumptions and stereotypes that are often heavily focused on technology use. Would you mind telling us a little more about these myths and the impact they have on autistic kids' lives? So I'd say that there's two main myths that circulate around autism technology in youth. One is this idea that they're just all technologically savvy, um, technological savants. This idea, this idea of the autistic savant in general is, um, is a kind of archetype that exists. And when it comes to technology, um, you see it repeated in TV shows like Silicon Valley, um, just kind of popular discourse in general, the idea that, oh, the halls of, you know, pick your tech company are filled with kind of people on the spectrum, whether they are diagnosed or undiagnosed. I guess, I just, I just don't understand why you, you, anyone would use spaces over tabs. I do not tabs. get like, if it's all anyone the same, use well, spaces use over tabs. I mean, why There's not just no use way over I'm going to be with someone who uses spaces over tabs. So there's this inherent, um, this idea of this being this natural relationship. There's also this myth of uh, an inherently unnatural relationship in this idea of, oh, technology isolates kids on the autism spectrum to the point at which they prefer technology over people and that they don't have empathy for others. Um, and this kind of narrative, uh, you find it tracing through uh, rhetorics around video games and autism and school shootings. So the idea of um, either it's a very natural relationship where they're so good at it or uh, this kind of pathologized in a different way framing of it um, kind of sours their their ability to to be human in a way. So those a those myths are you know they are myths they are they they serve a kind of cultural purpose in a way but that that doesn't they, their relationship to reality is a totally separate thing. But the impact of these myths, um, I think there are direct and indirect impacts on autistic kids' lives. So one is just they are dehumanizing um, and they make it easier for people to treat autistic people as less than human. Um, they're based on, I think at the very core, based on these long-standing ideas from kind of mid 20th century onward about autistic kids not just preferring technology, but being robotic themselves and products of or kind of victims of post-war industrialization. So there's this already sort of um, stripping away of, of the nuance of humanity. Um, and, and then I think in an indirect way, at least like as a researcher, those kind of pr those presumptions of oh we already know what the relationship is between kids on the spectrum and their and technology then limits the kinds of questions we might ask about their technology use from a more grounded perspective the theoretical framework applied in the book is something you call the socio-technical shaping of sociality or stss it draws on science and technology studies, especially feminist STS, anthropology, communications, and media studies in a really innovative way. Can you tell us more about STSS and why this approach is useful for examining the relationships kids on the spectrum have with technology? I started thinking about really that what I was interested in wasn't just about society and institutions um, and that kind of macro level. Thinking about how autism, the way that it is is kind of imagined, 
has so much to do with sociality and uh, both kind of the individual person and their relationship to others, their relationship to themselves, their bodies, their environment. Um, and from, a, from the side of uh, cultural anthropology and critical autism studies, uh, there's this notion of autistic sociality. And the notion of possibility was something that I thought was really interesting in that, in that concept. It's, it's this idea that there are many different types of ways to be social. And for autistic people, again, not everybody uniformly in the same way, but for autistic people, that might be different, but it's not altogether lesser. So, so thinking about kids on the spectrum, and thinking about possibility that there also aren't just, kids aren't, aren't just acted upon by the world, they act on the world. They are themselves actors um, in both individual and collective and structural ways. So to me then, STSS, is, is, it is about kids on the autism spectrum, but it's about understanding this dynamic relationship between social norms, which, and I should say largely neurotypical social norms, societal frameworks, and then technologies that enable and disable sociality in different ways and to different ends. Your response just now is reminiscent of one of the key arguments you make in the introduction of your book, which is that the experiences of kids on the spectrum are not so much defined by their diagnosis as they are shaped by how their disability intersects with other dimensions of their identities, including race, ethnicity, class, and gender. How did this finding emerge over the course of your study, and what are its implications? So for this project, you know, I definitely, I went in looking to recruit a diverse sample of, of kids. But when I talk about, you know, diversity, I, I meant, you know, both in terms of their autism, so different you know, degrees or different, you know, some people, some kids who do have um, intellectual disabilities, some who don't, some who do have complex communication needs, some who don't, some who have other kind of co-occurring conditions like OCD or anxiety. So in that respect, um, but also really especially demographically, because so much of autism is just so very white and so very male, and it traces through everything. It traces through the actual development of the diagnostic category itself. Um, it traces through who is researched, for whom uh, services are funded. Uh, it traces through who is represented in mass media as the face of autism. So what emerged in, in doing the ethnographic work that I, that I was doing, which um, and part of that data is, was from the, the work that I had done in LA kind of prior to 2015 and in the greater Boston area, which has significant income inequality as well as massive racial segregation. You don't have to go very far in Boston to hit economic extremes and to also um, just have large like areas where, you know, there's just not a lot of racial or ethnic diversity. So the landscape of the actual city itself, you know, was something that I very much took into account in doing in doing this work as it relates to what kind of services are available, what kinds of neighborhoods, like what does it mean to grow up as a kid in in a place? 
So what emerged was that just because two kids were on the autism spectrum or even had a similar profile in terms of their cognition or their behavior or communication didn't mean that much of their life looked the same at all. Um, for example, the physical space that they inhabit on a daily basis, whether they're in a house or an apartment, um, uh, the communities that they were in, whether that was a safe neighborhood or not, that all of those things shaped their leisure time and the role of media within it and the extent to which they felt a sense of safety and security through media. So you can't take a one-size-fits-all approach to autism and technology, but that's not just because autism as a diagnostic category is so complex, but because autistic people are too. The book is divided into three main themes cultural belonging, social relationships, and physical embodiment. I'd like to delve a little deeper into each theme, starting with cultural belonging. How do questions of cultural belonging and children's desires for cultural belonging come into play as kids on the spectrum engage with technology? So whenever um, qualitative researchers kind of come up with, with categories, there's always this caveat of, uh, you know, I had to separate them out, but of course they're interwoven. <laughs> so of course... Cultural belonging, you know, is shaped and related by social relationships and physical embodiment. You know, they shape each other. But the chapters related to cultural belonging, one is related to identity and one is related to learning. So essentially, how do kids on the spectrum get a sense of where they belong in the world and specifically through institutions like media and education? Kids on the spectrum, in terms of identity, make space for themselves through the media that they use, the technology that they engage with, to get a sense and understand what it is to be autistic. Um, I kind of hone in on autistic identity um, in the context of, of media and technology for these kids. And, and I should say I'm focused on kids ages 3 to 13. So before before you hit high school, before you hit puberty, the ways in which kids are able to articulate feelings of difference or kinship or recognition happens in these really interesting and, and diverse ways through the Minecraft characters that they make or through the ways that they do or do not identify with certain representations of disability in media. So, um, so that chapter sort of illustrates that, those layers. And then in terms of, you know, belonging on a daily basis, uh, you know, where do children learn is a very complicated question. But thinking at least about the institution of, of formal education, um, that there's on many levels, kids who do not find themselves belonging in their schools, in their classrooms, because of the conditions around them. So, you know, where does learning take place? A lot of learning happens informally with media for kids on the spectrum, but what kind of came out through the work is that a lot of that has to be contextualized against the backdrop of being excluded from or receiving a subpar education in these formal learning spaces. So one, one example that I, that I start the chapter with is a young girl named Sophia, a Latino, uh, a five-year-old, and how she had been spending really much of her summer at home, not really going anywhere and just consuming massive amounts of the show Clifford the Big Red Dog on YouTube. 
all, all this field work was conducted prior, a little bit of it edged into, into the pandemic. And so I had some remote interviews, but the ways in which, you know, understanding why she was just all of the time had this iPad and was watching, you know, kind of publicly funded educational media was because she, you know, the summer, she was supposed to have um, summer, summer school, but uh, that summer, but when her mom kind of dropped her off, um, the paraprofessional that was, you know, assigned to her child said that basically she just sat in a room all day with like crayons and did nothing. So that wasn't really, really education. Um, they didn't have a lot of space. They were living in a gentrified neighborhood where they had to move in with um, Sophia's mom's family. And so, you know, there wasn't a, like an extra, you know, playroom or, you know, exercise space or something to move around in. She also had really significant sensory sensitivities. So, you know, getting on the bus to, to go get somewhere, um, or even like local playgrounds, there weren't in the neighborhood they were in, there weren't, there wasn't much green space. To understand the sheer number, uh, the sheer amount of what she was watching, had to really understand the ways in which Sophia had been failed by institutions and infrastructures all around her. The second theme is social relationships. What roles do technologies play in the social relationships and resources or repertoires of your child participants? For example, in terms of making and maintaining friendships with other kids. The literature says that most kids on the autism spectrum do desire friends. Um, the question is kind of what do those friendships look like? Are they the same uh, kinds of friendships that neurotypical kids desire? Um, and what are the challenges that, that kids on the spectrum have in developing those, those bonds? Because they're, the challenges that, that kids have, they aren't just related, yes, to their own skills and abilities. So that might be challenges with, um, and again, it's not, it's not a uniform thing, but some, some are highly, highly empathetic and maybe are really pick up very easily on the emotions of others and some have difficulty with emotional reciprocity. Um, some may be very direct um, or have very um, um, kind of play with repetitive speech patterns in a way that maybe neurotypical kids don't necessarily understand. Or So kids themselves have these differences, but there's also this really powerful way that stigma and discrimination works in terms of how kids are become do or do not become part of the communities in which they spend their days in their classrooms in their schools, um, so the kids that I spent time with had um, some had very close friends. Some kids were very admittedly you know introverts. Explicitly said that they that they were, um, but technology became part of their social repertoires in these in these four main ways. So one as, as kind of a form of social scaffolding, uh, something that would challenge their sense of social safety and security, something that enabled them to exert agency over their social lives, and then also something that was shaped by these broader societal and contextual factors. Um, so when I say scaffolding, um, one kind of way in which that worked is using language and speech from media to practice social interactions. Um, there were a number of kids who, um, that they didn't speak a lot when they were a kid or had um, difficulties with 
that's known as like social pragmatics. So in particular social situations, using particular you know social terminology and language. So just memorizing lines from TV shows and being able to say them to other kids in a new situation that was like the thing they'd seen in a TV show. Or even practicing conversation. Um, one kid who I watched really kind of talk to this, the YouTuber Markiplier, uh, a gamer YouTube, um, in a way where he was kind of enacting a kind of pseudo-interactivity um, purposefully by turning on the captions on Markiplier's videos and seeing also what Markiplier was saying and kind of filling in the blanks and having a conversation. That to me, these are kinds of, these are scaffolds for, it's not to say that there's some then like higher, more ideal version of being social, but they're tools that kid, kids use to find their, their grounding in a way. Um, in terms of agency um, and making clear choices, um, video games were a really active choice, not exclusively for boys, but a lot of boys in the study, of having a clear structure and purpose, especially during something like a play date, where games give you a social activity with a shared goal. Um, and, and that being something that, um, that facilitated interactions that would not have been possible um, or would have been um, maybe more frustrating and a lot more tears and a lot more anger. Um, and that's not to say that video games didn't also lead to interpersonal conflict, but they created um, a way for kids to make choices. Um, but there's also kind of third thing as it relates to safety is the games are increasingly networked um, and as and there's lots of other opportunities for kids to be socially networked and and autistic kids also exist as we all do in a culture of personal likability where putting yourself out there is rewarded um, but those risks can be very high to kids on the spectrum especially if they don't necessarily understand the all of the many layers of of social of social complexity that come along with that. So there are risks that are opened up, and there are kids who that I talked to who kind of saw the scary end of things, and um, thankfully have kind of come out the other side. But um, it's stuff that's really hard to prevent, um, uh, but stuff that. The, I think in part because it's not talked about enough. Um, what, what bullying um, can look like for in, in these complex ways and these nuanced ways that um, aren't necessarily obvious for kids on the spectrum. Especially, I should say, in the context of social media girls. And I think that's in part because girls on the spectrum are just understudied in general. Um, and then lastly, race is something that I think is really central to talk about for kids thinking of one kid that I that I studied who was a black child in a in a somewhat diverse neighborhood but you know mostly his peers were other white kids and building friendships wasn't just about you know the technology that they played together but also the culture around this child who understands a black child or a black autistic child as a threat as as somebody who maybe is not no longer a child um, once they reach a certain age. So the understanding of building bonds of friendship and kind of openness um, and like bonding that occurs in these after school, out of school spaces around technology have to be understood against that backdrop as well. 
The third theme is physical embodiment. This section of the book includes a chapter on senses, which is adapted from a previously published article you wrote entitled Inclusive Sensory Ethnography. In that article, you refocus the discussion on autistic kids' sensory experience and embodied engagement with technology. This brings such an important and often overlooked dimension of technology use to the forefront. How does looking at senses help us to better understand how kids on the spectrum use and experience technologies? So my initial learning um, in the context of assistive technologies was actually through one therapeutic field, the field of occupational therapy, which kind of has to do with what occupies you on a daily basis and how do you work to improve um, that activity. Um, and a lot of when it comes to occupational therapy and autism is related to sensory integration. How do you make the sensory environment around you more amenable to your, your, your functioning so that you can sit in class, so that you can go to the dentist and you know be able to sit there? How do you better balance your own sense of sensory regulation or dysregulation, which is something that a lot of kids on the autism spectrum experience, and the world around you, which you may or may not have much control of sensory-wise. Uh, I, I had absorbed that, that literature and thought about that in relation to talking about media um, and, and the sensory. Uh, there was one moment when I was in a kid's house where to me I was like, oh, there's a lot going on here sensory-wise that I don't know if the literature on media and the senses really gets at. And it was a kid who had a this thing called a gorilla gym, which is like in your in your door frame you can stick up like a chin-up bar or like a pull-up bar for like a home exercise. But this was something in this kid's apartment that in order to get his um, um, his vestibular sense of, of movement, the mom had set up a swing. And that's something that a lot of um, kids on the spectrum either kind of have a higher or lower threshold for, for movement. So this kid had a swing to the left of the swing in the family dining room, there was a, uh, an iMac set up with a bunch of DVDs scattered all around. And the kid would watch DVDs on this bigger screen, this iMac, but would watch it kind of from the side while he swang forward and backwards. The multi-dimensionality of this space and the different layers of the senses and media here, it's not just how does looking at the senses, I think, help us understand how kids on the spectrum use and experience technologies, but how their experiences of technology helps us think more complexly about the senses. Um, whether that's, you know, the fact that we don't, it's not just five senses, um, it's also this proprioceptive sense of, you know, your sense of gravity, of where you are positioned, of the vestibular sense, of your sense of motion. Because when these things go kind of off, they can be really disruptive. I'm going to shift gears a bit and ask you the question that I'm asking all my guests this season. The United Nations recently adopted a new general comment confirming and outlining how children's rights apply in the digital environment. Do you think this will have any impact on the kids, issues, and relationships described in your book? So I think that it can have an impact, but it really depends, especially if we're thinking on a global scale, not just about children's rights, 
and about the digital environment, but specifically about autism. So autism, you know, there's so much stigma globally about, you know, the causes of autism, um, the treatments of autism, um, and even just the, just being able to count who, what, how many kids globally are on the autism spectrum. Um, there's, there's a lot of, of that counting that happens in countries like the United States or the UK or Australia, but, but globally you have these massive gaps in information just about like, who are these kids? How many are there? Let alone then what are their needs? So something that we talked about in um, New Media and Society piece that I wrote with Gerard Goggin that kind of sets out to understand where the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities does or doesn't align with the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, that, you know, that there's all these areas that we could talk about the ways in which autistic kids' rights um, are really pressing in the digital environment, whether that's, that relates to like sexual health and kind of their understanding both of, of sexual like information and exposure to sexual information, to online safety, um, to education. But there's just this real gap of baseline data. And so I think to, to even like assess the rights um, of these kids, they have to be counted in the first place. But that requires, um, you know, better research methods. That requires kind of these wider global teams. Um, and I think that that's going to be important for um, for this kind of general comment to really fully have the weight behind it that it needs. A big thanks to Professor Alper for joining us today. Please follow the links in the podcast description to find out more about Dr. Alper's research, her upcoming book, Kids Across the Spectrums, and the other publications mentioned in today's episode, as well as information on where to send your questions or comments. The Critical Technology Podcast is produced by me, Sarah Grimes, with support from the KMDI. Audio mix and sound design by Mika Sustar. Music by Nicholas Manalo. Theme song by Tycom Park. Our logo was designed by J.P. King. And the artwork for today's episode was created by Kenji Toyoka. Please subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and posts as they become available. And thank you for listening.